It's my pleasure to welcome you to the Clark Howard Show. Our mission is to serve and empower you so you make better financial decisions in your life. Today, I know we've talked about the housing market a ton, and there's a reason for that. It's the number one biggest expense for us, and the market is going through unusual turmoil right now. I want to share a way some companies are helping buyers win bidding wars. It's weird. And after your questions, I also want to talk about some new ways biometrics are here to stay in your life. Some people think it's great. Some people, like Krista, find it very unsettling. So, one in four houses approximately in the United States are being bought cash only. And more and more frequently, I'll hear from people who get outbid on a house over and over again by a cash buyer who offers less money for the house than they offered, but they were considered to be a superior bid because they're paying cash. Sellers want certainty. And so now a lot of sellers may even say sales um, sales for cash only or it just if there's a situation where there are multiple offers, the ones offering cash move to the front of the line. In this hot market, when we put our house for sale this past spring, we had multiple offers immediately. And we were only interested in the buyers that were offering cash, not anybody who had to get financing. Because I wanted to know that it was a real deal that was going to close. So I'm part of the problem. And it's not realistic for most people. Think how weird it is that one in four homes being purchased are being purchased all for cash. Who has that kind of money? So the reality is a lot of people don't have that money, but they're going into the shadow financing market and they're getting it. Wall Street Journal did a pretty comprehensive piece on the various organizations that are offering the ability for you to make cash offers. One of them I did a story on TV about Knock. And there are many others um, that are offering either locally or nationally. Even Redfin is testing a cash offer program where they put up the money. So what's in it for any of these organizations? They charge you a fee that will typically be 1% or 2% of the cost of the purchase of the home is a bridge till you're able, after you successfully put in the winning offer and you close, you then have a period of time to get your financing in place. And then you're good minus the 1% to 2%. Typically, you have to pay them 
for having provided the loan. And I want to address something that we've had. We just had a question about it, I think, a week ago, a frustration, really. Why is the VA loan program looked at so negatively? And it's because of the time it takes to get through all the bureaucratic hurdles to close a VA loan. This is a terrible, terrible disservice to the brave men and women who put their lives on the line in the U.S. military for us. It tends not to be as much an issue for active duty personnel where they're buying homes. They tend to buy homes in areas that are not as overheated as you have particularly on the two coasts. But for veterans that want to use VA loans, it's become a real problem, even more than it is for people with conventional loans. So it is an alternative, but what an ugly thing we're having to do is we're having to find a proxy who's willing to step up and pay cash for us so that we can compete with other buyers. And as a seller, as I said, I was part of the problem because in a really hot market with many offers, it's natural that you want to take the one that you're not going to have a deal drag on or fall out, fall through because of a finance contingency where the buyers aren't able to get that financing done. Krista? Sabrina in South Carolina says, based on recent home values, I can sell my current home and walk away with a seventy dollars to $80,000 profit. Homes in my area are now priced very high, so I'm thinking of relocating to another state where I can purchase a new home for less than my current area. I see articles that the market is slowing. Should I sell, rent, or wait for prices to drop before I buy? So, Sabrina, real estate markets typically are very localized in what happens, but right now we seem to have almost a national pattern that after the big run-ups in home values, that in so many places things have slowed down somewhat, and uh, buyers seem to be on buyer strike in a lot of places because what's happened is the run-up in prices has been so much that it's outrunning people's abilities to afford so you would know if you put your home up for sale are you going to be able to move it at the price that would generate the profit you're looking for but Sabrina I got to ask you are you at a point in your life that you're not going to miss friends or family or whatever locating somewhere else and yeah there are places in the country you can go that the prevailing home price may be a lot lower, but do you want to live in those places? A lot of the places with lower home prices are going to be in parts of the Midwest that have been depopulating. An alternative as well, if you did want to sell, is, gosh, this sounds ghoulish, but to take your profits and then go rent for a while, and then home prices typically will moderate or fall during a recession. And recessions ultimately eventually happen. But the first thing would be, is it really a good idea for you to pick up and sell and pick up and move? And especially in that circumstance, if you go to a completely different state that you're not familiar with in a different part of the country, that's especially not dollars and cents. But just as a practical matter, I'd want you to rent first to see if it is a place you'd be happy living. 
Here's one from Justin in Georgia. About four years ago, I did the responsible thing and bought a reasonable first home with 20% down. All right. So great for you that your first home, you were disciplined enough to save enough money to be able to come up with 20% down. Very unusual, very rare. Four years later, my house has appreciated close to $100,000, and I'm kind of kicking myself for not buying a longer-term house, bigger and more expensive, for more money, which would have benefited me financially as well as from all the appreciation. Was I punished for being frugal and responsible? Is this simply a hindsight is twenty twenty situation? Also, as the second question, I have so much equity in this house now that it seems beneficial to somehow extract some of the equity and let it sit in a brokerage account and arbitrage the difference given the low interest rates on loans. Would that be a reasonable plan if I keep the investments low risk? So, um, first of all, I wouldn't want you to stack more debt on the home. It's great that you have so much equity, and it's wonderful that you have such a low interest rate. And there's nothing wrong with you uh, not worrying about the fact that you've got this great equity. This is a 2020 situation, by the way, as you referred to it, continuing in 21, that home values have had a, a very unusual cycle in moving up. And don't beat yourself up over it. It's actually great that you bought at a time that you rode this market up. So you're sitting really pretty there with the great equity you now have. And yeah, you talk about buying a bigger and more expensive home. Do you actually need a bigger and more expensive home? If this home is one you really enjoy in a neighborhood you like, you've got a low, essentially fixed cost in that house. You have now a lot of equity built into it from the marketplace and I would not do something like borrow against it to then invest. That creates unnecessary risk in your life. This is from Jason in Washington. FYI, my chart requiring social security number may not be across the board an across the board requirement. I don't remember having to give this info to get my chart at two different healthcare organizations in my area. Being a Clark listener, I was keen to not give this information. There are many settings that are individually set by the healthcare entities. Jason, thank you. And I have my chart at two different hospital systems. Don't get old and have illnesses. Anyway, two different ones. And neither of those hospital systems required a social security number from me registering on my chart. And this is reckless behavior on the part of any hospital system that in my chart requires a social security number, even a partial social, because the medical industry accounts for half of identity theft in the United States, and hospitals generally are very poor at their data security, and having that information is a danger to you, and it's terrible any hospital that does as part of my chart, require a social security number. If you're not familiar with my chart, it's a way that you can make appointments, see your test results, send a message to your doctor, that kind of thing, at many of the hospital systems in the United States. Next time you go to an event or concert, do you know you may not need a ticket to get in? 
biometrics. They're here to stay. Passwords are on their way to being a thing of the past, and I'll explain that next. I was very excited when I heard that Microsoft, for its various products, is allowing you to use a sophisticated two-factor authentication system and eliminate passwords. Passwords don't work. They just flat out don't work. Because human behavior being what it is, who can remember using complicated password structures that are different at every single website? Not a human being alive. Now, a lot of organizations offer password managers of various types. And that is a potential alternative, but adds additional complexity into your life. And Microsoft's like, why are we all trying to patch a completely broken system? So I hope that Microsoft being, they're not as influential direct to consumers, but in the uh, digital industry, Microsoft is big, powerful, and influential. I'm hoping that their move of ending the use of passwords will spread and coming up with alternative ways of doing so. I remember years and years ago, I did a TV story on something that really excited me, but apparently no one else. A company had come up with a little fingerprint reader that went into the USB of your laptop or your desktop. And it was a way of verifying identity for credit card purchases, for signing into organizations and all the rest. And it provided a way to deal with all the criminal behavior out there. And I've talked about why the financial industry has tried to get people to get little zip drivey things that plug in the USB that verify that you are who you say you are with an account. And the, the truth is, we got to get away from the passwords because they're not helping anybody eliminate or reduce fraud. Now, going back to the concert thing and what's going on with sports events and all the rest, everybody in the industry for live events trying to come up with ways to limit how tickets are resold and also to prevent uh, theft or fraud with ticket sales. And so Amazon has been experimenting with a biometric that reads your palm as a way to get into events that they sponsor. And you're going to see more and more attempts to come up with ways to verify identity. And, you know, for years I've been a customer of Clear, which is the airport expedited security system. And you don't show your driver's license. You don't do any of the normal things when you get to the airport. They read either your palm print or your eyes. And for me, my uh, fingerprints never seem to work, so they're always reading my eyes. And I know, Krista, this has freaked you out forever because of some Tom Cruise movie. Minority Report. They totally predicted all this. It's. I mean, I use Clear, too. I use my eyeballs. I use my fingerprint for everything. It's over. It's okay. 
So better or worse than having to remember all the crazy passwords? I mean, it it seems like it's more secure, except in Minority Report, they did they, awful. They yeah. cut the eyeball out? He bought, like, eyeballs on a black market and had them, like, a bad surgery to put them in. And so when he walked into places, they thought he was this other person. It's like modern identity theft, I guess. So at the Consumer Electronics Show, I saw, oh, they call it CES now. Last time I was there, which was the year before COVID, I saw these, there was this display section of technologies that verify identity perfectly. And it was kind of creepy sci-fi, all the different ways that technology has been developed to verify identity. And it really is about how we live now that we don't know each other like we used to. People move around a lot. We deal with a lot of big impersonal companies. So we are going to have various forms of biometrics. And so if you look at it on a scale of good and bad, I would say that the biometrics are a vastly superior thing to our ineffective passwords. I would also say that any technology like this in the right hands is fine. It's when it's in the wrong hands. Yeah, with the communists in China. Oh, man. Can you imagine living in a surveillance state with that awful dictator in communist China? Oh, anyway, I digress. Okay, let's get to some questions. This is from Ann in Texas. I have a flight credit from an April 2020 COVID-19 canceled flight I want to use for a, an April 3rd, 2022 flight. After using the website, contacting a reservation agent, and talking with her supervisor, I was told those credits expire on March 31st of 2022. No exceptions. It's a three-day difference. According to the supervisor, my only recourse was to contact customer relations via an online contact us form to see if they'll make the exception. What recourse do I have, and what's the best way to initiate it, and who do I contact? So, Anne, this is a conundrum I need to ask. If you canceled the flight you have to live within their rules and their date if american airlines canceled the flight if they you know in the early phase of covid when airlines were canceling flights left and right if they canceled that april 20 flight then you're actually entitled to a refund of the money not a credit on the other hand the airlines with formerly non-refundable tickets, non-changeable, had those huge change penalties, giving people a multi-year period to use the money was actually much more generous, particularly than the full fare airlines had ever been, like American. So that's the key. If they canceled the flight, then they actually legally owe you a refund. If you cancel the flight, you have to live within the dates. Now, the change you're asking for is so minor, you may have a chance that they'll make an exception. Um, but American is a very, very rule-oriented company and pretty inflexible. So I would be surprised if you're able by contacting them to get the three-day movement in the eligibility for using the money. 
This is from Terry in Michigan. My brother and I just inherited two burial plots in a local privately owned and operated cemetery, but we don't need or want them. They are deeded property with value, and we would like to sell them. The cemetery operator says plots are currently selling for $2,700 each, but they could offer no help in liquidating the asset. Your thoughts? Put the burial plots on Craigslist. Stand outside a cemetery office with a toothpick in my mouth, swinging a gold chain, <laughs> watch chain, asking you looking for a couple of good burial plots, Jeep. <laughs> this is a terrible issue for so many families because the culture of the country has changed, and now, depending on where you live in the country, the overwhelming number of people may be being cremated now. A uh, family may have bought burial plots long ago that aren't being used. And that $2,700 sale they're talking about, those aren't easy sales to do. All right, so this was a suggestion that was made to me by someone at a funeral home, is that you go to the cemetery, talk to some of the salespeople, and see if you can offer someone a huge commission for moving your burial plots. I'm sure they don't get a big one for selling a $2,700 plot. You might offer them $500 each for commissioning to them for getting those cemetery plots sold for you. The truth is for you trying to sell third party, the cemetery plots are nearly worthless. So if you can offer a commission incentive, to one of the salespeople, which may or may not be allowed at that cemetery operator, that would be the best way to do so. But even if you offer that, you may start a conversation, and one of the salespeople may offer you an effective strategy for trying to sell that the cemetery plots that you have. Okay, and this is from Kay in Maine. What is the best and safest way to give my college student access to a limited credit card while living in South America? Interesting. All right. So what you want to do is you want to limit how much your college student can spend while he or she is living in South America. My favorite way to do that is if you have accounts at Charles Schwab, that you open an account for your college student at Schwab, which I think requires $1 to open an account, and they will give you the... uh, Ugly debit card, you always talk bad about debit cards, but it would be appropriate in this situation where the money available to your college student would only be the amount you have available in the cash side of your Schwab account. The reason I like Schwab is it's unlimited ATM withdrawals, fee-free, and so your child can go to an ATM, get local currency, many places in South America, Things are still done in cash at most places versus credit card. But where credit cards are accepted, your child would be able to use it like any other debit card. It'll have a Visa logo. And so that would be my favorite way for you to control how much money is accessible and that money is accessible at no fee. And I want to tell you, If I didn't get to your question and you want one-on-one advice, you can talk to someone with our Team Clark Consumer Action Center that has been around since February 1993, answering your questions for free 
one-on-one. We're open Monday through Friday from 10 in the morning till 4 in the afternoon Eastern time. And you can call and speak with a member of Team Clark at 636-49-CLARK.